Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This week we have a special extended interview for you centering around a brand new report by the Institute for the Future which was done for Dell Technology and it has painted a very interesting picture of what our lives will be like in 2030. If all goes to plan, automation will replace humans in manufacturing. Many of the biggest companies in the world just won't be around and almost half the population won't have a steady employer. But is this all good news? Mal Kitson met up with Dell EMC VP and General Manager for Ireland, Ashling Keegan, to talk about this vision of the future and some of the big changes that have happened internally for Dell over the past year. This afternoon I'm out at the offices of Dell in Cherrywood in Dublin to meet Ashling Keegan who is the VP and General Manager of Dell EMC Ireland. Now in a little bit we're going to be talking about a report looking at the world of work in 2030 as Dell EMC sees it but I, I guess it's important to ask the obvious question straight away. Dell EMC, there was Dell, there was EMC, now they're both together. So tell us a little bit about um, how that process has been working out, how the two companies are coming together. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, at a, an executive summary level, I, I would say very well, um, considering you know we before we combined, we were two very, very large organizations globally, and as a combined entity, we now serve over 600,000 customers in over 180 countries. Um, we have a population of about 140,000 employees, um, 30,000 uh, services and support employees. So a combination of that magnitude uh, certainly poses its uh, opportunities as well as its challenges. Um, I uh, was the, uh, the chief integration officer for our local region, UK and Ireland, prior to us going live last September. So I was charged about 12 months before from a legacy Dell perspective in ensuring, along with my counterpart in EMC, that the once we went live, the integration from a functional perspective across all work streams, uh, all divisions, not only you know sales and customer service, went as smoothly as possible. And part of that meant you know, pre-wiring, um, doing workshop focus groups with people on the ground to address any of their local concerns and and whatnot. Um, so officially, we went to market as Dell Technologies, if you like, on sep- September 7th and re-architected and re-engineered our organizations February 1st. And so we can safely say that we're six months now into the new co, Dell Technologies. Uh, as a result of that combination, we've seen a great um, complementary set of skill set and capabilities across both legacy organizations from you know supporting customers from the services that they get and how we maintain their contracts uh, both from you know consumers small medium business to large enterprises and also lots of synergies between some of what I would call the support functions like marketing human resources finances um, we recently actually conducted a survey 
every year we have a, a survey that goes out to every single employee in our company, uh, regardless of what role you do. So we, it's called the Tell Dell survey. Uh, and uh, this went out to every single employee in, in Dell Technologies um, in May. And uh, the results actually we saw year-on-year improvements. We do it every year. It's an anonymous survey, so, you know, there's, there's no... Um, there's no uh, risk of anybody, you know, anonymous feedback being reported or, or identified. And we, got, we, we experienced year-on-year improvements in what we call our employee NPS score, our employee net promoter score. Um, and that moved a couple of percentage points and basis points up from last year. So considering, you know, the churn internally, uh, some of the uh, churn in the integration of functions, I think that was kind of indicative of how really successful the integration was. In, in, uh, in addition to that, we also surveyed our customers recently. We do what we call a customer net promoter score. And again, you know, we pre-wired customers prior to. It was public knowledge when we were combining. And we saw great increases in our um, net, promoter, net promoter score from a, a customer experience perspective. So customers are telling us that, you know, the integration is going well. The fact that the capabilities are complementary, our, um, our core competencies, they don't really overlap. You know, the historic Dell, Dell company would have been, I would say, pretty uh, strong expertise in what we would call the mid-market space, mid-market customers, and then obviously the EMC uh, business largely uh, concentrated on large enterprises in terms of the solutions that they brought to market. So that combination has really served us well because we're, there's lots of synergistic outputs as opposed to duplication. Uh, looking at sort of the bare bones of the report, I'm always struck by very interesting statistics that crop up in the introduction of these things. One of them being 85% of jobs that we expect to be around in 2030 haven't even been invented yet. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at sort of, I, maybe not a bold version of the future, but a logical extension of the technologies that are that are happening at the moment. Um, and they seem down to break down into sort of kind of usage models, I guess it's, it's fair to say. Um, one of which that is talked about in the report is the idea of the digital conductor. So uh, as opposed to being, you know, a lightning rod or something like that, t- tell us a bit about the digital conductor. Sure. Well, let me just give you kind of a backdrop or some context um, just to answer that question around the digital conductor. So I, I suppose the, the onset of this research search was born out of uh, a bit of work that we did last October um, what we call the Digital Transformation Index. And we went out to about 4,000 of our own customers, senior decision makers across 16 different companies, um, across all verticals, public sector and private sector. And really three key findings for us um, that caused us to engage with the Institute for the Future that gave rise to these outputs. And those findings were that more than half of these senior decision makers um, felt that the, the uh, era that they were living in, this, this fast-paced digital change, the acceleration of technology was causing disruption to their industry. Um, almost half of these decision-makers felt that they would be obsolete in three to five years' time. So this is 4,000 people that we went down to from large enterprises to mid-market, and over half of them felt we'll be out of business in, in three to five years' time unless we do something about it. And about 48% of them didn't actually know what their industry was going to look like in three years, hence why we commissioned a report with Institute of the Future. And as you said, 
the the because of the rate of change uh, technology and these emerging technologies that the report talks about are driving this change but also the explosion of data you know 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years so it kind of throws Moore's law out the window in terms of 10 times over five years um, and we anticipated in, in lots of research we've done over the last couple of years that there'll be about 200 billion connected devices by 2030 you also have the changing um, uh, influences and demands of consumers they want everything now uh, on demand and you've got also the proliferation of smartphones and end user devices and when we look at these these end user devices that are going to be connected you know by billions by 2030 95% of those security breaches actually happen at the at the end point so as a result of that, the output of the um, research says that because of all of these, you know, catalysts and drivers behind this change, it's going to change the way we live, the way we work, uh, the way organisations conduct business, the way we play. And how that will manifest itself in the next 10 to 15 years from our perspective with IFTF was that the the individual in society will become the digital conductor of how they work and how they play. So in other words, they will be the orchestrator of both physical and virtual resources that will interconnect between their personal life and their working life in terms of the work that they do. Um, and that digital um, orchestration, if you like, will be powered by you know the whole advent of artificial intelligence, uh, robots, or you know what I like to prefer to refer to as automation and um, machines, if you like, because I think the whole concept of robots brings a whole new different. Uh, lens to the to the discussion um, but that whole you know uh, acceleration of automation uh, machine learning uh, the whole change that we're seeing with the organizations that we work with and and uh, individuals consumers that we talk to that change of you know what i would call a sharing co-creative economy or rather an experience economy where it's about the experience of how you work and how you live and this digital conductor um, role, if you like, or how that's going to manifest itself in the future is that we will move away from you know, ownership of fixed assets to you know, virtual resources. And all of these embedded technologies would, will enable us to conduct literally our daily lives in a digital way. So we're kind of looking at the stage where people are walking around with a suite of platforms that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they might have, say, Siri is their preferred digital personal mm -hmm. assistant or, you know, Uber is their preferred over my taxi or a link or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe we, we might have some sort of medical platform for managing either your own health or, or somebody else's. So uh, is this where the idea of conduction comes around, that you, know, you will have this suite of platforms in front of you and I think there's something like a choice of almost 2,000 at the moment to pick from? Absolutely. Um, the Institute for the Future did a, a similar uh, bit of research in 2016 um, and across the globe they identified exactly as you said about 1800 plus digital platforms um, that are giving rise to this you know orchestration that I talked about individually uh, most of the majority of those digital platforms have been created in the last five years and you mentioned you know the likes of Uber and, and, and lots of other ride-sharing apps 
you know, there, there's there's a next step to this that we're already seeing, uh, and that's the integration of those digital platforms with kind of a, a an evolution of um, lease as a service models, if you like, as opposed to ownership. Um, and actually, I think Uber are doing uh, are they in work right now with Tesla, where they're actually introducing the concept of driverless taxis. Um, and even if you think about that in terms of the impact of society, because just to give you some context, our mission, Dell Technologies' mission, is to deliver and build technology solutions for customers um, that enable human progress. And we're of the opinion that that progress sits at the intersection between people and technology. And what we're seeing now, if you take that concept that we just talked about, Uber doing work with, you know, um, driverless car companies, well, then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years' time, you can envision, envision a future where people don't own cars. In actual fact, I read a stat somewhere that by 2030, it's anticipated that 50% of cars will be driverless in the market today. So think about that for a second. And uh, 50% of those cars perhaps mightn't be owned uh, by 2030. So not only does that impact the automotive industry, um, and it, it positively impacts the consumer experience, so it goes back to this experience economy that I talked about, because all of a sudden, you know, you don't need to buy a car, you don't need to own it, you've got a, an on-demand service. You want to go to work? Well, then you, down, you, know, you, you click into your application that delivers a car to your door. But the impact that that can have on, you know, governments, policy making, urban planning. So, you know, 50% less cars on the road that aren't owned, that it's as a service model means that this kind of brings in the whole concept of what do our cities look like in 10, 15 years time and what impact is this technology going to have on our cities? What does that driverless cars and, you know, non-ownership of fixed assets mean to our um, government policies that we're going to be making or urban planning or, you know, household infrastructures. So the whole, you know, concept of, you know, embedded or emerging technologies uh, has a, is, has a almost like a radical potentially impact on society and, as I said, how we live and work. And organisations who aren't thinking like that, organisations who aren't thinking about what could happen are going to be left behind. I think uh, I read somewhere that is it 50% of the Fortune 500 companies that existed 10 years ago don't exist now. Um, so I think it's incumbent and imperative on organisations to think about how do they future ready themselves. And you know, part of that is looking at um, one their security posture of their own organisation to you know the workforce. I mean, if you even look at the age profile and the demographics, um, not only in Ireland but across Europe and and APJ, I think the elderly are the the uh, largest growing demographic of you know the millenniums. But yet, it's the, those digital natives, the, the millenniums, that are going to become our future leaders, our future technologists, our future engineers. Um, our future entrepreneurs. I think the as-a-service model is particularly interesting when you, when you are relinquishing sort of that idea of ownership and that 
pretty much extends into the corporate culture as well. Uh, I know in the States you're seeing a situation where half of workers are actually freelancers and this is something that is filtering down into the Ubers of the world where mm-hmm. you know you don't really want, as a platform, you don't want to take responsibility for people that are actually using your platform. Yeah. And that's that's actually part of the great weakness of the of the model, I think, is that people, if, if people are going around with your branding, but you have no control over what that person is actually doing, it can be very damaging to your corporate reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, so in looking at how the world of work is going to change, it's kind of a two-way, two-way street, isn't it? I mean, people are, are getting more idea to, uh, getting more comfortable with the idea of being a freelancer or being, in, I guess, maybe in control of your own workload. But it does force um, sort of the corporate world to reevaluate itself. I think you're spot on there now. Um, if you look at you know some of the outputs from the research, uh, we talk about you know work chasing talent as opposed to us chasing work or talent chasing work. Um, but just to your question, you know the the uh, collaboration between machines, if you like, and people, and you know what the future of work looks like in 2030, based on our research uh, in conjunction with. Um, with this organization, it does pose opportunities because all of a sudden, you know, I'm, go- I'm going to give you the, the I'm, I'm, I've been described as the etern- inter- eternal optimist, so I'm going to give you um, an example because it's, it's, a, uh, it's an initiative that's quite close to my heart. But if you look at gender diversity and, you know, women in the corporate world and, and organizations, I think it's less than a third, 28% of, um, of employees in organizations right now are females. Um, also, if you look at some of the entrepreneur startups, we do a lot of work with um, entrepreneurs, but specifically women entrepreneurs. And some of the venture capitalist funding that these women on, on, that entrepreneurs are receiving, almost 90% of the VC funding goes to male entrepreneur startups. Now, I've spoken to hundreds of entrepreneurs, actually uh, born out of this country, and they've said that actually they struggle when you know they're presenting their business case, and their view is that actually it's it's you know it's a gender bias. Um, when you look at some of these emerging technologies and the future of work, and some of the intelligence platforms that companies are bringing to the market, that has massively pos- um, positive. Um, impact, if you like, or opportunities for the likes of these female entrepreneurs and for larger organizations that can anonymously, through the artificial intelligence platforms, tap into key talent anywhere in the world without knowing what the ethnicity is, the the gender is. And I think that will go a huge way to um, not necessarily balancing the, the diversity stats, but creating better business outputs because we know that a more diverse uh, board or a more diverse team creates better business um, yields. So that's the first thing. There's, there's with that comes opportunity. I also think, just to your point, you know, there's there's um, not necessarily risk associated with it, but there's a consciousness that needs to be uh, raised, which is. You know this emergence uh, of of these uh, platforms, this collaboration between machines and uh, humans, if you like, or, or people, is going to create a need for individuals to become more digital savvy, to have their own, you know, what the report talks about, their brand, their digital identity, because that access and how we work, and if if we do go to work chasing people as opposed to people chasing work. 
then the next generation, those digital natives of workers, need to make sure that they are networked sufficiently, that they have, you know, a strong digital footprint in terms of, you know, uh, the recruiters having, you know, access to their talent, etc. So, uh, and there's also the risk that, you know, one size does not fit all. So there is that risk of leaving others behind. And we've, you know, it's incumbent on organizations like ourselves to, make sure that we're, you know, partnering with third-level educations, that we are, you know, leveraging uh, governments to make sure that our future workforce is skilled for the the uh, the next-generation capabilities that we're going to need. Um, and when you're talking about work-chasing people and the value of having uh, a good, or I guess uh, hygienic, I think is the, the term that I came across, um, digital brand but you know kids are growing up and they're oversharing because they don't know any better I mean at, at what stage do you sort of introduce a ban hammer and go okay look below the age of 16 we were we were what we were you know we we change we grow we gain skills and um, how do you think companies should approach this problem I, I, I think it's a difficult question to answer. I actually, you know, I was involved in a kind of a think tank session with uh, a lot of other multinationals um, around the table in Ireland, and we were having this very discussion uh, in terms of, you know, whether there should be a cutoff or are you actually inhibiting, you know, access to information, transparency, and the opportunity to evolve and learn. Um, and, and, and I'm somewhere on the fence. I mean, I have, you know, parental restricted rights on my own. I have two, two young boys, 10 and 11, and they're restricted from accessing um, the Internet as we know it. You know, we've got parental guidance in there. Um, so I think it's a difficult one to, to answer. I would say that, you know, for all of the, uh, the risks uh, and security risks um, that... Uh, that the internet poses, I think there's much more opportunity. And I don't just mean the internet, but that kind of digital evolution. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I am. I think it's Gen, Gen X at this stage. I won't, uh, I won't divulge any um, particular age, but I was very disappointed to see that of the, the, uh, the seven, 478 million subscribers to LinkedIn, more than half of them are millenniums, and the millennium profile is 19 years of age to 41, and, I, and I'm way past there. But we've got to, we've got to, to future-proof ourselves and organizations, we've got to um, endeavor to think as a digital native. And they're growing up in that environment. I got my first phone when I was 23, um, and it was the size of a brick. It was a Motorola 360. Um, my, my son, my eldest is 11. He doesn't have a phone because I'm just embargoing that for, for the moment. But they have iPads. They have iPhones. They have, you know, access to virtual reality games, etc. So it's a different world, if you like, that we're living in. Um, but I think there's there's a fine line between, you know, um, open, free access to information and managing that, you know, transparency. One of, the, one of the things that you raised there is kind of the idea of the digital divide, that if you are growing up and you have these devices around you, you do gain that initial familiarity. I mean, I remember going to college, and the first time I ever had to deal with a word processor was at the age of, I think, 20, when I was sat in front of a Mac, and I didn't even know how to save a document. Um, uh, now we're at the stage where people, you know, if they see a screen, they assume that it's touch-sensitive. Okay. So... 
how do you, I mean, do you see a role for companies like Dell in improving digital literacy, you know, in, in ways that the classroom can fulfill at the moment, specifically looking at hardware? Absolutely. Um, we have invested a lot of uh, time in education institutions from actually junior school. We call it the, the cradle to grave um, program. I know it's probably not the most appealing uh, strapline where, you know, we've actually worked with CETA to um, what I call influence the influencers. So put together a curriculum uh, centered around technology because in as much as organizations like ourselves can educate, you know, consumers and customers to some of the pioneering initiatives that we're doing internally to make us future ready because you've got to drink your own Kool-Aid. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's key stakeholders and influencers in society that need to come with us. And part of that is, as I said, educating those influencers from junior school to senior school to third level. Because, you know, if you look up at the drop off, even of, of female secondary school students into third level, 60% drop off into STEM subjects. So, and a lot of the, um, the deans and the professors of third level education institutions that I talk to today are saying that 98 they can ensure employment places for 98% of their graduates if there's an internship so a year where you know those graduates actually are immersed into the world of technology or engineering or whatever the case may be prior to graduation it also kind of begs the whole question around how we educate and you know our is our Education, I'll call it infrastructure or, you know, modus operandi, fit for purpose 10 to 15 years down the line, what we call, you know, in-house learning. The whole concept, I mean, I, I did my degree in UCD and, you know, the, the, that traditional thinking of once you do your degree, you then get a job and then you learn on the job. I think that concept is, is dying. Um, I think, you know, in terms of third level education, we're engaging with those institutions on what we call immersive technologies. So not only from a hardware perspective that you mentioned in terms of touchscreen, but virtual realities, some of the products and solutions that we're bringing to market to ensure that actually that that um, third level education experience becomes, you know, real time experience as opposed to um, as opposed to traditional. Very interesting conversation, actually, just as an aside. I was doing a little bit of clean-out in the house at the weekend, and we have, myself and my husband, have filed all of our um, books from when we went to college, when we did the Masters, when we did the MBA, and, I, and we've had them there for 15 years, uh, actually longer than that, but they've been in this new house for 15 years. And I said to my husband, we've got to do a clear-out. Let's just, you know, dump everything. And he said... No, we've got some really good books there. And I said, when was the last time you looked at any of those books? And he said, well, 15 years ago. And I said, do you think they're actually relevant right now? They're obsolete. You know, you can get everything virtually online. So um, we have a huge role to play. And we're working with, you know, third-level institutions on enabling um, enabling uh, students to learn in a different way to equip them for the future organisations that are going to be become part of. Yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience in doing a clear out, all right. Yeah. It, it turns into more a nostalgia exercise exactly, than a, yeah. actually a resource. Exactly. But this does speak to the idea of ongoing professional development. And if you're a freelancer, that can be pretty pretty difficult to come by um, because it requires business sponsorship in most mm-hmm. cases. Um, so th- this does require a different learning model. I mean, you can't be spending all your days on MOOC courses or you know signing up for additional master's degrees or something like that. Um, specifically, 
if you if you have a very um, niche task that you're looking for, maybe a, a, you're working on a patented piece of technology or something like that, where the the information isn't in the wild. So, how do you see that sort of niche specialization entering into the workforce where there isn't mainstream educational support for it? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, immersive technologies are really uh, drivers behind that niche specialization, and we've got lots of examples where, you know, we're working with institutions on, you know, what we call on-the-job learning. So, you know, where a, an employee can go into a specialized, um, let's just say, you know, media, you know, high-rendering graphics and media uh, vertical, and they, through not only the, the hardware that we provide, but the intelligence um, software that we work with our partners on, they actually may be posed with a problem that they don't know the answer to, but through some of the intelligence platforms, as I said, the software-driven um, applications and the hardware, they can actually uh, problem-solve on the fly. And that's going to become, I mean, it's difficult to envisage now for the traditional worker but it's not so difficult to envisage when you go back 10, 15 years' time. So I think those immersive technologies are going to be critical enablers and catalysts for that, what we call now on-the-job learning, but, you know, um, but will become critical to um, helping and collaborating with co-workers and colleagues, be it in the field or in-house, virtually. And that was Niall Kitson talking with Ashley Keegan, Dell EMCVP and General Manager for Ireland. That's it for our show this week. Remember, you can get all the Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show online and broadcast every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.